Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Today, we are interviewing Gills Club scientist Grace Castleberry. She is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where additionally, she is also a NOAA Dr. Nancy Foster Scholar and a National Geographic Explorer. Her PhD research focuses on applications of acoustic and satellite telemetry to improve our understanding of how sharks use marine protected areas and interact with game fish and anglers. Broadly, her research interests rests on the intersection of marine animal movement, conservation, and management, particularly for highly mobile and long-lived fishes. So you will hear in our interview with Grace that she works with an array of different shark species, but I know we haven't done a shark species profile in a couple episodes, so I figured I would at least give some fun facts about the tiger shark since she is working on tagging this species throughout one of her research projects. So the tiger shark is named for that distinctive color pattern on the side of their body, which is those dark and dark gray vertical bars or spots with then underneath them kind of has these pale or white undersides to them. So these markings are really more distinct when the tiger shark is a juvenile. Then as they grow older, they do start to fade. So the reason why they're called tiger shark is because of these vertical bars looks very similar to what their tiger stripes would be. Tiger sharks are also known as the garbage can of the ocean. They are known to eat most marine animals, seabirds, the occasional terrestrial animal, and even garbage that they encounter as they are swimming through the oceans, usually floating around the sea. Despite the tiger shark being a slow-moving shark, it is a highly effective ambush predator that they can really do these really quick, short bursts of speed to be able to secure their prey items so they can effectively eat. In our interview today with Grace, we are going to be learning about her current PhD work. So let's just deep dive right into the interview with her and learn a little bit about what her current work is. Welcome, Grace. So thank you so much for coming on. So for anyone, I know this is not a visual podcast. It's all audio, but Grace is actually sitting in front of me, which is super exciting because we even had an in-person interview except for Marianne Long, which is our co-founder of the Gills Club. So this is so cool to be able to see you in person and do something. Yeah, Kristen, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for to kick it off, so I just want to explain who you are, what you do, your current research. Yeah, so I am a PhD candidate at University of Massachusetts Amherst. I work with Dr. Andy Danilchuk and Dr. Greg Skomol. Uh, and I have sort of two projects going on for my PhD. One of them is uh, working in Buck Island Reef National Monument, which is a marine protected area in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And that project focuses on uh, using different kinds of tagging and tracking technologies uh, to look at residency, so how much time those sharks spend in a marine protected area for four different species. So I'm looking at tiger sharks, lemon sharks, nurse sharks, and Caribbean reef sharks there. Uh, and then in addition to that, I have a project happening in Florida Keys uh, in collaboration with the National Marine Sanctuaries Program there looking at predator-prey interactions between great hammerhead sharks and Atlantic tarpon. Um, so tarpon are this big silvery fish that are really fun to catch recreationally. They're part of a huge fishery down there. And one of the things that I'm interested in is learning 
how often great hammerhead sharks are interacting with tarpon fishermen um, because we're seeing that depredation is happening a lot there. And what, what depredation is is basically just when a shark comes up and eats a hooked fish before an angler can get it to the side of the boat. And that's not good for multiple reasons. It's not good for the tarpon. It's not great for the shark because it's sort of a unnatural feeding behavior and, and can lead to conflict between sharks and anglers. And it can be pretty expensive for the fishermen too. So they might lose gear or if they're a fishing guide, they might lose clients. So working down there just to learn more about the movements of both sharks and tarpon, as well as these interactions with recreational anglers. That's so exciting. I feel that, you know, there has to be, you know, you're doing your science, but there's also then that communication key too, because you have to be able to, you know, be able to have that relationship with the anglers that are down there and being able then to be able to hopefully that they are telling you everything that is happening when you cannot be there. Because, I mean, it would be nice to be living down there at all times to be able to, but you can't, if I'm assuming that. Right, yeah. So the first year of that project, I spent about three months in the Keys in the spring, which is sort of the peak tarpon migration time. Uh, and I work in a, in a specific area near the Seven Mile Bridge in the Florida Keys. Uh, there's a really big tarpon fishing hotspot there called Bahia Honda. And so I was working with the fishing guides that take clients there regularly. And, and my lab has been tagging tarpon down there since 2016. Oh, wow. Uh, so we, we got to form these really great relationships with a lot of the tarpon fishing guides that are interested in the project, largely from a tarpon conservation perspective uh, and, and just interested in, you know, where are these tarpon going and are these predators following them? And so they would you know, send me a text message if they had a hammerhead come up um, and, and take one of their fish. Every once in a while, it would be one that I tagged, which was kind of cool to, to yeah. know uh, where my tagged hammerheads were. But yeah, it's it's really something I've learned kind of about, about science as I've gone on is how important those external relationships are. Uh, I think sometimes as scientists, we can try kind of try to like keep to ourselves and and be really introverted. I know <laughs> that I am. Um, so opening up and making those connections uh, is really important. And it's been really fun to get to uh, work with people that are out on the water every day because that's, you know, every, every marine biologist's dream is to get to actually be out on the boat every day. Absolutely. <laughs> and I want to hit back to the note where you said that the fishermen are really helping out because they want that conservation of the tarpon as well because without that conservation and knowledge, they don't have that livelihood as well. So it is this really unique relationship that scientists can have with fishermen if it's local or abroad like you are alike and being able then to work collaboratively um, for your research, but as well as then a livelihood for them as well. Yeah, yeah. It's it definitely can be a delicate situation mm -hmm. at times, but it, it's been really great to, to get to work with anglers and, and sort of hear the things that they're concerned about and figure out how you know, we might be able to incorporate that into future avenues of, of the science. Um, so whether that's working directly with guides to try to come up with solutions for losing fewer tarpon and having fewer guide angler interaction or <laughs> shark angler interactions. <laughs> yeah, the, all those kinds of things moving forward. Um, those relationships are really important. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned a bunch of different sharks that you are currently working with in tagging. Is there one that is more challenging to work with than another species? Yeah, I would say that the hammerheads are probably the most challenging. Um, so the species of hammerhead that I work with are the great hammerheads, mm -hmm. which are the largest species of hammerhead shark. And they're actually, this always really surprises people, they're very sensitive mm -hmm. as a species. So they're incredibly sensitive to um, exercise stress and basically um, exercise stress-induced mortality. And so you have to work with them really, really quickly. There are some places, other labs, that will actually tag them when they're free swimming, um, but it's harder to put multiple types of tags mm -hmm. onto one shark when you're tagging a free swimming shark. Uh, so we catch our hammerheads and bring them up to the side of the boat uh, to put our tags on, but we have to be really conscious of time uh, when we're doing that. So pretty much in the boat, uh, we sit right near our gear while it's fishing and are watching it at all times. And as soon as a shark gets hooked up, we go over right away. If it's a hammerhead, we start trying to bring it into the side of the boat immediately, which is pretty different from a lot of other species that you might be fishing for, where you would soak a long line for maybe an hour, two mm -hmm. hours, so that by the time you get to that shark, if it's been hooked for a little while, it's tired. Mm -hmm. When we get to those hammerheads, they are full of energy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they are not terribly interested in spending a lot of time at the side of the boat with us. So it, it takes a, a good bit of muscle just to, to get them to the side of the boat. And then once they're there, I'm constantly thinking about, okay, how much time has passed? And, and I have a, a stopwatch with me or I'm checking my watch just to, to make sure that we're moving fast enough because we want to make sure that we put those tags on a shark that's going to swim away really strong and give us incredible amounts of data to tell us where they like to live in the ocean. Uh, so mm -hmm. we're really, really conscious of that time. And not that I'm not conscious about time with the other species that mm -hmm. I work with, but it's just that we have more time. So we yes. don't have to be quite as sort of stressed out about, <laughs> about making sure that the shark isn't stressed out. Mm -hmm. so. Um, so you say you do multiple tags. So what different types of tags and are you putting on? those sharks? Yeah, so um, with the hammerheads, I use acoustic mm -hmm. telemetry. So that is a tag that functions um, with receivers and sound in the water. Mm -hmm. So the receivers are, I like to tell people they're kind of the size of a Pringles can because a lot of people yes, know. Yes, they are. I love that <laughs> analogy. I'm going to use that now for outreach stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's everybody that I've talked to knows what a Pringles can looks like. So they mm -hmm. We put them on sort of a cement mooring, sink that down on, onto the bottom of the ocean, uh, and we put them, we have over 100 throughout the Florida Keys. And then there are a bunch of other researchers that have them in different places. And so those tags on the shark uh, will put out a little ping, a little sound into the ocean every minute, minute, minute and a half or so. Uh, and if a shark is swimming within listening range of one of our receivers or somebody else's receiver, that receiver will log the date and the time and you know where it's anchored in the ocean. And so then that's how you know where the shark is. Mm -hmm. and, and we are part of a, a great network of data sharing um, with a bunch of different researchers in Florida and then up the East Coast and in the Gulf of Mexico as well. So we're all sharing our data and we can track the sharks basically wherever they decide to swim where there are receivers in the water. 
but we are restricted to where those receivers are in the mm -hmm. water. So the other kind of tagging that I'm using is a um, pop-up satellite tag. Mm -hmm. And so those tags are called, they're archival tags, which just means that they store the data inside of them and they don't need receivers. So anywhere that the shark swims based on temperature and depth and light levels that that tag is recording, we can figure out where it is in the ocean. And so that can give us an idea of more broad scale movements, where the shark is when they're not near a receiver, if they're in really deep water where we can't anchor a receiver or just in an area where nobody's working right now. Once that tag pops off, it'll transmit its data up to a satellite, which then sends me an email and then I get all the data. So it's really cool to have all these different kinds of technologies that let us track sharks and, and lots of different animals through the ocean. I'm always so interested when we like compare acoustic data because how you said you have a hundred of your own receivers, but then there's other researchers that are having their own receivers, but it's great that they work together, that it's almost like that interdisciplinary way of being able then to share that data as well. And it's just one way that shows that scientists are this collaborative effort as a whole. Yeah, it's, it's really great. I've gotten some really interesting data uh, from the Hammerheads. They, they seem to like to go back and forth between the Keys and Tampa Bay a lot. Uh -huh. um, and so I've gotten to connect with the researchers that have, have receivers out in Tampa Bay when they send me data. And, and sometimes their fish will be down on our array as well. And so we'll get to send them data too. So it's, it's cool to get to see like what everybody's tracking and, and what's showing up where and, mm -hmm. and to get to make those connections. Mm -hmm. So working with 100 receivers, I'm sure that gives you some challenges as well. Um, so I know for here, when we are doing white shark research off of Cape Cod, you know, we are collaborating with towns to put them in every season and to haul them out. So are you making that track down to put all 100 in and out every year? Yes, we don't take ours out um, okay. every year. So we, uh, and this is a project that I'm just sort of a, a part of it. So okay. I want to make clear that I'm not the only person <laughs> that's Perfect. that's doing okay. all this work. But yeah, my lab has had that array uh, out in collaboration with Bonefish and Tarpon Trust since 2015 or 2016. Okay. And, and once a year we go down, we bring the receiver up onto the boat, we download it, we change the battery and we put it back in. So it's a really big undertaking for about a like week and a half. Mm -hmm. And then we really just have to hope everything <laughs> goes well, hope that there are no big hurricanes. That's sort of the biggest thing that, that we have to worry about in terms of losing receivers are those big storms. Um, and we're relatively far away, so it's hard. We can't, and there are so many of them. Even if we had, if, even if we were in the Keys and had all this notice that a storm was coming, it would be really hard for us to yeah. pull all of them out. Um, so that's the thing we worry about the most is, is having a big storm come through. But we've been pretty lucky. Uh, we, we haven't lost many, and it's sort of worth it in, in the amount of data that you get from all of the ones that are staying yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. See, that makes more sense now because I was like in, in my head as you were describing, I was like, oh, my gosh, that is such a big undertaking. So many receivers to maintain <laughs> with that. Um, but going into different 
projects that you said that you've been working on so far, do you have so far a favorite discovery or an aha moment? And it could be with your current research toward your PhD or something that maybe you've done in the past. I have two, okay. uh, so I'm going to give each project a little bit of love. Love that. Uh, <laughs> so um, the the St. Croix project, which is is part of my PhD, but originally started out as part of my master's, mm-hmm. all, which was also at UMass, we were originally just using those acoustic tags, and, and we were tagging tiger sharks um, as, as part of this multi-species study. And I remember the first tiger shark that we tagged. Um, I, I was down uh, with Greg. It was the mm-hmm. very first day of field work for my master's research, so it was super exciting. We caught this tiger shark. They hadn't caught a tiger shark fishing down there before, so oh they, had, they had been doing some fishing for, I think, two years before I started, and so that was exciting. We put the tag in the tiger shark, and Greg was like, we'll probably never hear from that shark again, because tiger <laughs> sharks are pretty well known for being sort of wanderers. Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends sort of on what study site, it seems like sometimes they have really high residency to an area, and sometimes you tag them and you never hear from them again. (laughs) So we ended up actually getting incredible data from that shark. So we tagged that shark in 2015, and I'm still getting detections from her now in 2021. Um, So that was super exciting. We've since tagged five more tiger sharks for my master's project down there, and we heard from all of them really consistently. So that was exciting, but I knew that we weren't hearing from them every day, we weren't hearing from them every month. So we knew they were going somewhere, and that somewhere was outside of where we had acoustic receivers in this marine protected area. Uh, And so I got really passionate about wanting to put satellite tags on the tiger sharks, and I went to Greg and Andy, my advisors, and I was just like, I know I'm supposed to be writing my master's thesis right now, but I really think we need to write a grant to try to put some satellite tags mm-hmm. out. Uh, and we ended up getting that project funded and we're working on it now. Um, so that was sort of the first time where I feel like I was really thinking like a scientist and thinking about new research directions that we could go in. So even though, you know, tiger sharks having residency isn't necessarily like a groundbreaking discovery, they do that in other places. It was the first time where I was really like, oh, this is a thing that we didn't know before, and now let's try to learn more about it. So that was exciting. Um, And I guess my my other aha moment is also sort of related to residency, but it was the, the second year um, that I was hammerhead fishing, we, uh, on the very first day, the very first shark caught a shark that we had tagged in the first year. Oh my and gosh. so we had a recapture, and recaptures are pretty rare. Mm-hmm. And to recapture the shark in the exact same place where we had tagged her almost exactly a year later, we would have gotten that information from the tag data eventually, but it was just so exciting to be like, oh, they come to this place where the tarpon are regularly. Like, this must be a really important predator-prey sort of area where where mm-hmm. feeding is happening. Uh, and so that was also just incredibly exciting. Oh, man, that, that's so cool. I mean, like you said, having a recapture is incredibly rare. And to have it just in the same spot almost to a year later, like, that just makes it even more rare. <laughs> yeah, it was it just it was incredible. Um, we were 
bringing the shark into the side of the boat and its dorsal fin popped out mm-hmm. and I could see that there was something on the dorsal fin and I was just like, oh my gosh, I think it's tagged, I think it's tagged. And so then everybody on the boat was like all excited and freaking out when we got her up to the side and then getting to go back home and opening up my laptop and figuring out who it was and mm-hmm. and that it had been, it, it was almost exactly a year later that we caught her again so that was just really cool it's meant to be yeah (laughs) (laughs) so I know you like to focus in marine protected areas so I know you've been focusing a lot of those further south ones but is there a marine protected area that you would love to go into and study those species in there one day oh that's a fun question I guess and I'm actually sort of working on trying to start a project <laughs> here, but I, I've been starting with a collaboration with Stellwagen Bank National mm-hmm. Marine Sanctuary, which is also part of our National Marine Sanctuary system, like the Florida Keys. And I've always really wanted to do shark research more local to where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up in the Northeast and have been in New England now. Um, for over a decade (laughs) and somehow I keep ending up with these uh Florida and (laughs) and and tropical projects which I'm I'm not complaining because they're absolutely beautiful Mm -hmm. places but I I do really have a a soft spot in my heart for New England so it would be great uh to get to do more work in Stellwagen and and with those folks they're they're really awesome Mm -hmm. Speaking of Stillwagon, you were able to see some incredible action there the other week. Um, so if anyone has not been following the news or social media, if you're not from the New England area, a humpback whale died from natural causes and it was floating at the surface and Grace was able to witness some pretty incredible action off of that. So would you like to dive into that a little bit? Sure, yeah. So uh, we we were trying to tag uh, basking sharks and there were no basking sharks. But early in, in the first day while we were, we had a uh, spotter plane up looking for basking sharks. So basking sharks are filter feeders. So you can't throw some stinky fish on a hook into into the water and hope to catch a basking shark they won't be interested so you need um you need to have a, a plane to try to find mm-hmm. where they are uh, so the plane was up flying around um and, and we got a phone call that there was a, a dead whale and <laughs> greg my advisor is always prepared for any situation sounds about and right with him <laughs> so so he had uh some extra tags with him with the idea that well what if we got into a whole pile of basking sharks <laughs> which probably wasn't going to happen because there hadn't been sightings of basking sharks for a while but we ended up in a whole pile of white sharks which was just incredible i had seen white sharks on the water before, Mm -hmm. but had never been this sort of up close and personal with them. Um, We were in relatively small, I think it was 17 foot boat, one of the sanctuary vessels, and and we were able to get right up on them while they were feeding on this shark and, and put some tags out, which was incredible. But just watching that feeding behavior was, amazing getting to really see how they sort of use their whole body to to take a bite out out of that blubber was it was it was amazing it was an experience (laughs) that I will probably never have again in my life and the thing that I keep thinking about was how 
there's absolutely no way we ever could have planned that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that you could never put, you can't write that up in a grant proposal. No. You can't You can't plan when there's going to be a whale carcass and, and just getting to see this incredible behavior. I mean, there were, there were also blue sharks there as well. So that was cool to get to see sort of the white sharks and the blue sharks cycling through with each other and, and all kinds of seabirds also feeding on the, on the slick. It, it was just a really incredible nature experience. <laughs> that is one thing that's on my bucket list. So I've been here in New England for five years now, and that's one thing still haven't seen yet. And it's just when I hear if it's now you describing it or Megan Winton describing it or Greg Skolmel doing describing it as well, it's almost like this choreographed dance that they have, and they just know how to go in and out and kind of pass through each other if it's between the white sharks or the blue sharks or both species and just kind of their knowledge of knowing how to, like, interact around this whale. Yeah, it, it was really – really amazing. I, I, I feel like I'm at a loss for words for it still. And it was, it was a couple weeks ago at this point, but it, it was really great. It was great to, to be out there um, with the Stellwagen Bank team as well, because they do a lot of work mainly with whales and seabirds. Um, but a lot of them had never seen this kind of behavior on a whale carcass either. So it was, it was great to get to share that with them. And then um, for the sanctuary to get to take some of the iPhone video and GoPro video and, and, and make a really cool, informative um, YouTube video about it. It was really a great experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So to kind of start rounding out our interview today, I just have a couple more questions for you. But one thing, being able to kind of work your way up through your undergrad and your grad and now working toward your PhD, what are some things about becoming a scientist did you not expect along the way? I think that probably the biggest thing was just sort of how you get research projects going and, and mm -hmm. funded and working. I feel like that's something that was never really explained to me as, as an undergraduate, that it, it's, it's this really big process of not only do you have to conceptualize what you want to do, but you also have to write a bunch of grants to, mm -hmm. to try to get the money to do it. And, and I obviously knew that you had the money had to come from somewhere yeah. but I didn't know sort of the process of grant writing and um, sometimes you have to write four five six like numbers go up and up grants before you get with the right combination of people that are interested in your project um, so just sort of learning more about that kind of behind the scenes planning stuff is is things that I um, that I didn't know about, but I actually have found that I really enjoy. I like writing, and, and so much of science is actually mm -hmm. writing, uh, which they definitely don't talk to you about in school, and I think that that oh. is kind of a disservice to people uh, because you can, you can be the best scientist in the world, but if you don't know how to tell people about why it matters, Absolutely. then nobody's going to know why it matters, and mm -hmm. that's really important. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. No. I mean, if it's writing or grants or coming on a podcast and talking about it or just being writing art, art articles, scientific communication is so important. And I do agree. I think that's something that I think I hope more universities are going toward. I see it with our interns that come through that they take science communication classes or even looking toward a grad program that's geared toward that as well. But I do agree that there is some things that I think in some undergrads that 
could have been prepared more as well. I feel like the same with my own journey and experience. But with that then, maybe if it is telling yourself that take more writing in, in undergrad, what's some advice you would give to your, your younger self? I think the biggest thing is that there is no one tried and true path to get to where you want to be. I think back to how I was, particularly as a senior undergrad, I I really wanted to go to grad school. I knew that was what I wanted. And I had this like grand idea of doing some kind of tracking movement ecology study, which I had no experience doing before. Um, and and I didn't get into grad school the very first time that I applied when I was a senior. And that in a lot of ways felt pretty catastrophic and mm-hmm. felt very much like I was deviating from the plan, <laughs> the grand plan, which, you know, th- there is, there's no such thing as no. a grand plan. I think that's my biggest advice is that if you have a goal, you can work towards that goal. And there are lots of ways that you can get to that goal. And there's no one way that's the best way. Mm-hmm. And so I um, went and I did some internships. I uh, worked as a field technician um, for NOAA in Panama City, Florida on some shark mm-hmm. surveys. And those internships and that job are really what got me eventually into grad school. And I was way more prepared for grad mm-hmm. school and for what I really wanted to do after having taken those two years, gaining gaining experience. And um, I also didn't realize how sort of burned out I was from school. So it was great to have that break. And mm-hmm. so just knowing that there's no one best way to to get to where you want to be. You'll get there eventually if you if you persist. I think that's great advice. <laughs> and it's something that I think holds true for anyone. If you're listening, you just love sharks, but you know that's not going to be your career path. You know, I think that's a great advice for anyone in any career path that you're going toward that. It isn't just one way. Everyone has their own way and you'll get there. You just have to chip at it. Maybe it's not in your grand plan or your what you're what you want it to be. But before you do leave us today, um, do you have any social medias for people to follow you on and keep up to date with your research? I am on Twitter at G Castleberry and then also on Instagram, G A Castleberry. So middle initial on Instagram. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you for coming in. This has been lovely to hear about you and get to know you a little bit more. So again, Thanks. Thanks. It was great to be here and great to meet you in person. Yes. (laughs) I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Grace Castleberry. So interesting to hear how she's managing this research being a PhD student at UMass Amherst here in Massachusetts, while most of her research is off of the Keys and Florida. So I hope you were able to learn a little bit more about her research today. Please go give her a follow on social media and let her know how much you loved the podcast. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.